So why are we here tonight? Uh, there are at least four good reasons. So uh, two years ago, we, uh, we moved in into this beautiful building, the Andrew Wiles building. And the first reaction to many of us, many mathematicians and non-mathematicians, seeing all the arrangement of stairs, is this is just like Escher painting. It's just like Escher. So we wanted to explore that a little bit, because nowadays when people come in, they also they still say that the visitors say, oh, that reminds me of Escher. So Escher really resonates with many people, especially mathematicians, as that vision of mathematics realized in, in, in print. Uh, some of them get very obsessed by it, not me. Uh, and, and we wanted to, to, uh, to push a little bit that inspiration of uh, Escher and mathematics into, into an event. And uh, the inspiration went one step further was uh, when John Chapman came, Professor John Chapman would be giving the, the second, the second uh, lectures, uh, uh, came to me and says, I, I, I decided to transform the math building into the art gallery of Escher. And we'll hear about the mathematics of that in, in, uh, in about 30 minutes. Then the third thing that happened is that uh, uh, Roger Penrose will hear tonight. He's, uh, was gifted by a series of different collectors, private collectors, uh, uh, beautiful prints. And they're right outside, they're going to be outside just today. Uh, so I invite you, when you, you leave, if you haven't seen them, you go right on the right after we're done and see these original prints. So there are a series of six prints plus one, which is the waterfall. And uh, we decided we need to have a special event to unveil them. So you'll be pleased to know that these prints will be on permanent display once we find the right place in Oxford where to display them. And it will, be, it will make the Oxford University the largest permanent display of Asher in the UK. And that by a factor of seven. <laughs> so it will, it, it, these prints are very special. I don't know. It always takes a little bit of time to sort out things, so I don't know when they will be in permanent display, so, but I invite you to, to have a look at them tonight. The, uh, the last thing that happened is that, inspired by this very event tonight, uh, Clem Hitchcock decided to make a movie about Escher, and we'll be showing the Escher, Escher movie. I know it sounds impossible, but tonight nothing is impossible. Uh, there was also, at the same time, also inspired by all our work and events, uh, uh, the uh, uh, exhibit, uh, 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 temporary exhibition in Edinburgh about all the Asher, very large exhibition. And this has now moved to London, and it's, uh, today is the opening day, it turns out, also. So I also invite you to uh, have a look at a very uh, wonderful uh, exhibition. We'll see in the, in the movie uh, so, some, of these, uh, some of these works. So uh, all of that, I could not resist the temptation, we could not resist the temptation to organize an event uh, related to Escher, and that's what brings us here tonight. So the running event for tonight, let me uh, tell you, we'll first have Clem Hitchcock, who's going to tell us about the movie. The movie is 28 minutes long, and right after that, John Chapman will tell us about the mathematics of Escher, one particular print and the one that he made following the same rules. And then we'll uh, hear from uh, uh, Sir Roger Penrose about his own dealing with Penrose, uh, some of the actual impossible objects that he managed to realize, that we managed to assemble here tonight, but also the Escher from the future. What would Escher have thought possible or made with modern mathematics with more? More, more new ideas. 
So we're all looking forward to, to do that. Now, uh, I see there are some uh, young people here, so you probably don't know, but putting an event like that, it's an event like any other, unlike any other event that we've put together. And if you, if you know about uh, lawyers or insurance or administration, you realize that this is truly impossible to, to make an event like that or have, have original prints, original models, and the panel that we have today. It is not a, a miracle, but it is the hard work of, of different people, in particular Darrell Lombard that you, that you know, uh, many of you know, uh, Balash Sandro, who is in charge of the art, Sam Owison, and uh, Ruth Preston. I'm sorry if I miss other people. But they really have made this possible. So as I, as I welcome Clint for the introduction, please give them all of them a big round of applause. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me, Dara, particularly in this building, uh, which features so very strongly in the film that you're about to see. Uh, and I would reiterate the, um, both this part to keep an eye out and the, uh, uh, I wonder if the designers just knew how Escher-esque their stairs would look under a, uh, under a lens of a camera. So it's fantastic um, to be here. I think with something like this, it's great um, that a story like this to be told, any story, but a documentary like this, um, to have the enthusiasm uh, of somebody, uh, but also their connection to a particular subject like this, as Professor Penrose has, uh, is a rare thing indeed, and to get the chance to bring that um, out in a film like this is, uh, is wonderful. Um, I think that um, uh, there, a, a lot of stars have to align for, for something like this to be made, uh, in particular, as was just mentioned, uh, the exhibition, uh, which remarkably, the exhibition that started in Scotland um, earlier this year, uh, was the first ever major retrospective uh, of its type in this country. And as mentioned, it's amazing. There's only one Escher uh, work here, other than that, which is in um, the Hunterian in Glasgow. Amazing that now, thanks to the collection at the Gaminti Museum, so many are here. Um, and I would strongly recommend the, um, the, the exhibition, which has just moved to Dulwich uh, and is going to be there till January, I think. Um, as well as uh, the story that you're about to hear about the connection, uh, Professor's connection uh, with Escher and uh, Escher with mathematics. Um, one of the things that was perhaps very surprising about the film for us was um, how overlooked uh, Escher has been, the technical side of Escher's work has, has been, and you can see in the works outside, uh, works that we're so familiar with in reproductions, on prints and in posters, uh, and on album covers, actually to see the craft, the, wood, the, the, the woodcraft um, skill that's needed to make those images, I think that's something that really surprised us. Um, I too have a couple of thank yous before I start. These, um, uh, th these wonderful models that you see, which are, are reconstructions of ones made by uh, the professor and his father, uh, were made by uh, Anthony Penrose, who I don't think is here. If he is, do, do a bit of hand up. But these were made especially for us, and they're wonderful, as you, uh, as you see in the film. Also, these, uh, these dogs, which you see will complete the illusion in a way that will become clear soon, uh, were, um, were initially used um, uh, for the models that the professor and his father originally constructed, uh, and they were supplied by um, Shirley Hodgson, Professor's sister, so thank you for that. Uh, and um, finally, thank you very much to the Professor for, for telling his story in, in such a wonderful way that you're about to, to hear, and for his patience in, in um, walking up all those stairs. Thanks very much indeed, enjoy the film. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So the picture I want to tell you about find where to stand, is this one, which uh, made a very brief appearance in the movie, but wasn't really discussed at all. And its English name is Print Gallery. And it's got some very interesting mathematics behind it, 
which was uncovered in about 2001, 2002 by a Dutch mathematician called Hendrik Lenstra. And uh, Lenstra came and gave us a talk in 2002 on it. And I want to share with you what I learned from him that day about the mathematics behind this print gallery. So what exactly is going on here? You have a guy in the bottom left who's looking at a picture. And in that picture, there's a town by the sea. And if you follow it around to the top right, then the buildings get bigger. And eventually, you realize that the building that he's stood in is a building that's in the town that he's looking at, so that he is standing in the picture that he is looking at. So you have this cyclic expansion. As you go around, everything gets slightly bigger until you get back. And, and of course, he is in the picture he's looking at, but so is a copy of the picture. And it carries on going around and around, never ending. What's interesting about this picture is if you look at any little bit of it, so I just choose the, a, a little bit, then it looks perfectly normal. There's nothing unusual about it. And it doesn't matter which bit you look at, it looks like a perfectly normal bit of a print. It's only when you put it all together that you get the illusion because this expansion is gradual as you go around. So the first thing I want to tell you is how, uh, how I should generate this picture. And then I want to tell you what the mathematicians did when they got hold of it. So he started with the idea of, uh, of laying a grid of squares down on a piece of paper. And then what I need to do is to deform this grid of squares so that as you move along one of the boundaries, the squares get bigger. And the first thing he tried to do was to use uh, straight lines to do this. So you have this fan of lines coming out of the corner. So that if you start with them a certain distance apart here, by the time you get to this edge, they're four times as far apart. And if you do that, then a little square that you shade down in the bottom right becomes four times as big by the time it gets to this corner. And a little square that you shade here becomes four times as big. So that by the time you've gone all the way around, you've, you've increased your scale by a factor of four times four times four times four, which is 256. But the, the problem with using straight lines is where you can see it in this picture. I started off with a little square, and I've ended up with a shape in that corner which is not a square anymore, because the lines are not at right angles anymore. And, and when you do this deformation and you don't keep the, the lines at right angles, you end up shearing the picture, and it distorts it, so that if you did look at a little bit of this, it wouldn't look like a normal print. It would be too distorted. So Aisha started this way and then threw it away and decided not to do this. And intuitively, he adopted a scheme where he used curved lines. And the advantage of using curved lines was he could make sure that the, the original lines, which were at right angles to each other, would stay at right angles to each other everywhere. And the advantage of doing that is that you start off with little squares, and you always end up with squares all the way around. And he just found this. Uh, this idea, I think intuitively. In mathematics, we have a name for this sort of map where it preserves angles, so that right angles stay right angles, and they're called conformal maps. And that was the conformal map of my title. So the actual map that Escher used looks something like this. So you can see that if you look at any little bit of this, it just looks like a, a grid of squares. But the scale of the grid changes as you go around. So if I start with a little square near A, by the time I get to D, that square is four times as big. And if you have a little square at D and you did the same thing and got to C, you'd get four times as big again. So by the time you've gone all the way around this picture, one little square would become 256 times as big. 
So that's the grid that he got. How then did you, do you make the picture once you've got the grid? Well, so you take your original undeformed picture, you do a sketch, and you lay this grid of squares over the top of it. And then what you have to do is that for every square up here, you look to see what's in that square, and you copy it out onto the same square into the deformed picture. And when you do that, and you do it assiduously for each one of these squares, where then that will uh, automatically give you this expansion, this zooming in as you go around. So that was the way that Escher generated his picture and, and led him to this by the time you filled in all the squares. So Lenstra was fascinated by this, and he, he asked himself two questions. So the first question was, what did the original picture look like that Escher started with before it was deformed? This is what the deformed one looks like. Can you reproduce the original rectified picture, the one that would still have straight lines? And then the second question was, why did Escher leave a hole in the middle here? What should go in the hole? And if we know what the, what the grid is, could we continue the picture into the hole? And what would happen if we did continue it into the hole? So I'm going to try and answer both those questions. So the first thing that Lenzer did to try and get some information about, uh, about what exactly it was that Escher had done is we have this transformed grid over here on the left. And then um, the original picture is somewhere here on the right. I don't know what it looks like yet, but uh, let me assume the picture is sat behind here somewhere. And now I'm going to walk around in this transformed picture and see where I end up with in the original picture. So I'm first going to do a path where I walk from A to B. So I've covered a certain number of squares in the transformed picture, and I will have gone a certain distance in the original picture from A to B. And then I'm going to turn left and go to C. Now, the squares on this side are four times as small as the squares on this side, because the squares were getting smaller all the way along here. So one big square here becomes a, a square which is very small here. So if I go from B to C, I have to cross uh, a distance which is four times as great in the original picture, because the squares have got smaller. And if I come from C to D, I have to go four times as far again, because the squares are getting smaller all the time. So to go the same distance, you have to cross more squares. And then if I come from D to A, I've got to go 64, four times as far again. So in the transform picture, I've now got back to where I started from. But in the original picture, I haven't got back to where I started from. I've got a lot further out. And in fact, I'm a factor of 256 further away from the center of that picture than where I started from, because I got a factor of four for every time I walked along this uh, one of these edges. So given that in the original picture I'm back where I, in the transform picture I'm back where I started, that means in the original picture, whatever's at this position A must be the same as it's at this position A. I must have a copy of it so that I, I got back to where I started. And that tells you that whatever this original picture is, it's invariant by scaling by 256. So that if you took this picture and you, you blew the whole thing up by a factor of 256, it would look the same. So this is known uh, more or less universally now as the Droester effect after a Dutch brand of cocoa powder. <laughs> so 
So this is a very famous cocoa powder in Holland. And you can see that the, this is a picture of the box with the maid. And she's carrying a tray on which is the box. So she's carrying uh, the tray. There's the box. There's her again. And of course, on that box, there's a picture of her carrying a, the box. And on that box, there's a picture of her carrying the box, and so on ad infinitum. So this picture carries on. It gets very small because of the factor of about five each time. Uh, but it's invariant in the sense that if you blew this box up so that it was the size of this box, then that little box would be this box, and et cetera, et cetera, and you'd, the picture would look the same again. Um, I can give you a live demonstration of this if this camera is working. This is the sort of thing that we could, it's called video feedback. So here's you, but if I point it at the screen, then now you see I have a picture of the screen on which is a picture of the screen, is a picture of the screen, and it carries on all the way down. So whatever the original picture was, it has this invariance by a factor of 256. Okay, let's do another walk. So I'm going to start again from A, but this time I'm going to walk, I'm going to go eight squares up. So in the original picture, I'm going up by, uh, by distance eight, and I've counted eight squares up in the grid. And now I'm going to turn left, and I'm going to walk eight squares again. The squares are getting smaller, so I don't get quite so far. I'm going to walk eight squares down, and now I'm going to turn left again and walk eight squares to the right. So now, in the original picture, I've got back to where I started. But in the deformed picture, I haven't. I've got to some point here. And the same argument works again now. So because the original picture, I must have the same thing at A, there must be the same thing at this point as there is at this point in that transformed picture. <coughs> and that immediately answers the question as to what should go in the middle of the hole, that this is this uh, point here is effectively in the middle of the hole. So what there should be there is exactly the same thing that you see, but shrunk, and I have to rotate it a little bit because there's been a bit of rotation here as well. So the transform picture as well is invariant under scaling and rotation. So in that little hole in the middle, there should be another copy of the whole thing shrunk down and rotated. And of course, in that copy, there's a little hole in the middle of that in which there'd be another copy shrunk down and rotated, and so on, all the way in. So I'll show you a demonstration later on where, of a, a version of this picture where we don't take the hole out to show you what really goes in the middle. OK, so I want to demonstrate the map in a different way now. But 256 is too big a scale factor to show you anything. That if I had a. If I shrunk this box by a factor of 256, you wouldn't be able to see anything. So I'm going to use a factor of four instead. So here's a grid which has the Dreister effect, but with a factor of four. So if I shrunk this outer grid down by a factor of four, it would be the same as this grid, and shrink that by a factor of four, it's the, the middle grid, etc. You have to imagine this going all the way down, but I've only drawn three levels of it. So if I blew this picture up by a factor of four, it would look the same, because this grid would become that one, and the middle one would become this one, and then the one I hadn't drawn in the middle would come and fill out the inner one. And just to show you, so you can keep track of which grid is which, I'm going to color code them. 
So what you have to imagine is that if I draw a picture on this, whatever I draw on the green, I draw the same thing on the blue, but scaled by a factor of four. And I draw the same thing again on the red, but scaled by a factor of four. So this picture carries on all the way down. And then I want to show you what Escher's map does. It cuts this picture along that, uh, the dark line that you can see there, and it shifts one side relative to the other. One is getting slightly bigger, one's getting slightly smaller, and then you stop when it exactly matches up again. And so now you wouldn't see any cut because even though the green is not joined up to the green anymore, it's joined up to the blue, and the blue is a perfect copy of the green, and the size has been shifted so that it exactly matches. So that instead of this thing now being invariant as you go in, I have this, you can sort of see this spiral expansion now, that as you go around, things get smaller, but it joins up perfectly. And you can also see on this picture that the, the red if, is a copy of the blue, which is a copy of the green. So you can see, because I've only got a factor of four, you can see that this picture repeats itself still as I go in, but that green doesn't join up to green anymore. Now green joins up to blue. And that's why, as you go around, you're stood in your own picture, as opposed to having a new picture in the middle. Okay, so that's another way of looking at Escher's map, but I still haven't told you how Lenstra worked out what this map was. So how would you actually work out mathematically how I generated this picture? How did I know what map to use? So to do that, Lenstra divided the map into three stages. So the first stage is to take a logarithm. So sh let me show you what a logarithm does to this picture. It opens it up along that cut again, but this time it opens it out and folds it back, and you get something like this. So the, let me explain what the axes are. So if in the original picture, I can describe any point in this picture by using two numbers. One is the distance from the center, and one is a bearing or the angle. <laughs> And when you take the logarithm of that picture, what you find is that on this axis, you get the angle. And on this axis, you get the logarithm of the distance. So there are, there are three things to notice now about this picture. The first is that this map that I just did is conformal, so that the lines that met at right angles still meet at right angles. So little squares are still little squares. The second is that when I do this angle, I've only shown you the angle going between, well, minus 180 to plus 180 here. But of course, you can carry on around as many times as you want in this. So if you carried on and went around a full loop, this picture would just repeat itself because you'd get back to where you started. So really, this picture goes on, uh, carries on going upwards there, but it's periodic. It has a translation invariance. So you get this bit that I've drawn would appear again above and above that, likewise below and below that. So it has this, uh, you can slide it and it looks the same. And the, uh, the reason for taking a log is that this now does the same thing in the other direction as well. So with this original picture, if you multiply by four, you get back to where you started. But once you take a log, if there's the one formula that I have in my talk, is that the logarithm of four times r is the same as the log of four plus the log of r. So by taking a log, you turn a a scale invariance into a translational invariance. So in this picture, multiplying by four corresponds to adding log four to the log r. And so that's why the blue is a shift of the red and the green is a shift of the blue. 
so that this picture is now periodic in this direction, but it's also periodic in this direction. And that's the first step. Okay, that's the hard step. The second step is to rotate this picture. So I've added a little bit more on the top and the bottom so you can see it would carry on periodically. And now I'm gonna rotate it and scale it a little bit. And I'm gonna stop when the join between the blue and the green is exactly above the join between the blue and the red. And by doing that, this picture is still periodic in the up direction with the same period of 360 degrees. Because the blue is a copy of the red and the green is a copy of the blue. So I've got the same invariance. It's still got the same translational invariance in the vertical direction. And the fact that this line exactly maps onto this line means that I can undo the logarithm and the picture will join up smoothly. So when you undo it, so it stitches it back together again, but now instead of blue joining onto blue and green joining onto green, because I did that rotation, now green joins onto blue and blue joins onto red. And that's how you make this map. So the key thing was, was getting that rotation right in the logarithm plane. And there's only one way to do that. And once you know what that is, you can work out what the formula is for this map. So let me show you, now that we know the formula, we can apply the inverse of this map to Escher's painting and see what the rectified Escher would look like. And this is what it looks like. So this is the map without any distortion. And you can see that everything looks perfectly normal, but you might ask, well, well, so first of all, what's this bit missing? That's the bit that fell outside the boundaries of Escher's painting, so we don't know what should be there. Didn't draw it. Um, but you might also ask, well, where's the town gone? Where's the ship gone? Where's the rest of it? And of course, I've only shown you this at one scale. This is invariant under uh, scaling by 256, so I've got to zoom in a bit to the middle to show you what the rest of it is. So if I zoom in by a factor of four, you get this, and you start to see the ship now. And you zoom in by a factor of four again, you start to see the rest of the town. And you zoom in by a factor of four again, you start to see the outside of the gallery. And then you zoom in by a factor of four again, and you get back to here. There's another guy, and you can keep going around. It's invariant under zooming in by 256. So when Lenstra came and gave us a colloquium on this, in 2002, I was one of these people who was fascinated and obsessed by it. And I thought, how cool would it be to actually do one of these? To actually take some pictures that have the right property and then apply the map. And it took a little while before technology caught up with my aspirations. Um, but when we finally moved into the new building, I had the opportunity. The computers could now do it, um, and I had a nice picture of a new building that had nice regular grid structures that was going to look nice. So we went off and took some pictures. So I updated it a little bit. Instead of having a guy in a print gallery, I had a guy at a desk looking at a computer screen. <laughs> um, and then Alan and I went up Green College Tower next door and we took this nice picture of the Mathematical Institute. And the, the reason it's hard to do this is that one picture is not good enough. Because if you do one picture, 
and you zoom in by 256, you just lose all your resolution. Even if it's a 16 megapixel pixel, it just doesn't work. So you need to take multiple pictures and they need to really fit together nicely. So you zoom in on this one, my office is just there, so you zoom in on the middle of that and you get to this picture. And then you zoom in on that and you're zooming in just on this office and you see that. Then you can see there's a little bit of Photoshop going on here because when you take a picture of a building from the outside, you just see windows look like that. You don't see people like that in the middle, so you have to do a little bit of Photoshop. <laughs> and then you zoom in on this and you see the guy at the computer screen and then you zoom in on this again and you get back to there. So you have it, it's cyclical again. And in fact, now that I've got pictures and a computer, I can really show you uh, what this Dresser effect looks like by turning this into a little movie where you zoom in and it keeps going because <laughs> in there there's a guy. And of course it'll keep going for as long as I show it. <laughs> okay, so I've got my four pictures. So I cut a hole out of each one. And then the idea is that, so this picture fits in that hole after scaling, and this picture fits exactly in that hole after scaling, and this one in that hole, and then of course this one in that hole, and it carries on all the way down. So now, if I apply the map to each of these pictures, I get these four bits. So even though each of those pictures was uh, a factor of four smaller than the others, so relative to the original picture, they're a very small part of it, each one contributes an equal amount to the final image. And so if I've got those exactly right, these should all line up. When you put the four bits together, it clicks, and you get the Escher image, which is outside. And our building really lends itself to this picture because the nice straight lines, you see the flowing curves um, that uh, Escher also wanted to do in his picture by making the print gallery uh, with a row of prints. So you have the guy looking at a computer screen and the building he's looking at on the computer screen is the same as the building that he is sat in. And we blew this up and there's a picture of this outside the door. You might have seen it on your way in, but you can certainly have a look on your way out. Now, so I said, uh, for my picture, I haven't taken the middle out. So in the middle there, at a scale of 256, there's another version of me sat there at a different computer screen. And I can show you that by zooming in again and rotating. And as you zoom in, you get the same thing back again. Okay, in the last uh, two or three minutes, I just want to show you some of the other things you can do uh, once you know what this map is and some of the things that Escher might have played with if he'd still been around. So let me just go back to how we generated this map. We, we had this doubly periodic structure. Uh, and so let me just put a grid around it and I'm gonna put, uh, put these uh, dots at the edges of that structure. So. This is one period, so these are like the tiling. So each one of uh, these squares is repeated. So whatever's in this square gets repeated in every other square. And then the way I generated the map was to rotate this and scale it so that this point lied exactly above this point. 
So I chose this red point, and I turned it into a point that lies exactly above the one that was fixed. But the map would work if I chose any other point here. There's no special reason to choose this one. So I could choose any point here, rotate and scale, and put it at the position of this red one, and the picture would join up. It might look strange, but it would join up. So I just wanted to show you some examples of what you get if you choose other points. And I just put them all on the same picture. So this is the original one, where it's the one I just showed you. This one is also interesting. So if you, if you rotate, you choose this point, and you rotate clockwise instead of anti-clockwise, you also get a sensible Escher-style picture. It's just that now it expands as you go anti-clockwise and gets smaller as you go clockwise. But it's also something that, uh, that Escher could equally have drawn. It's rather unfortunate because of the scale factor as you go up the side. So this guy's got a very big head. This guy's got a very little head. Um, I don't know which one is better. And various other ones of these, you see that they get, uh, they get rather strange. This one has got, it expands twice as you go around. So you have an even stronger factor. And most of them, the direction of gravity doesn't stay vertical as you go around the outside, which is why they don't look so good. But maybe that's not such a, something that uh, worried Asher too much in some of his other prints. Okay, and the last thing I wanted to say was uh, this number 256 has come up all the way through, right? That there was a factor of 256 uh, invariance in the picture. You scale by 256, you get the same thing again. So was there anything special about 256? Why 256? And uh, now that I have these images, I can change what the scale factor is just by changing the size of the image I'm looking at. So if I zoom in at the picture on the screen, I'm changing the scale factor in the Droster effect. And you see 256, you don't really notice really it's a Droster effect until you get close to the end where you get to, this is a factor of four. And now suddenly you can see multiple heads here. So you see that you're looking at a picture that has this video feedback, this Droster effect. So from here, I can show you what the Escher map looks like. If I want to Escherize this, do very smoothly. Maybe I'll see if the computer can do that again. Yeah. So you shift the head along, right? You choose one head and you shift it along and it joins onto the next body. And when you've done that, now it's fairly obvious that you have this spiral going in there and that inside there's a smaller version and then inside again there's a smaller version all the way down. So this picture also looks interesting, but it looks very different to the original. So a factor of four is not very good for generating that original illusion. I think sort of central to Escher's illusion was that you didn't know that it carried on infinitely often into the middle. You didn't know what was there. You only saw one version, whereas here you clearly see multiple versions. Um, and now I can scale back out again, so I can show you what the Escher picture would look like at various different scales. So let me see if I can pause it a few times. You scale out. Gradually, the guy in the middle gets smaller. You start to see more of the picture. It, you've got to scale out a long way before you're looking at something interesting. But all of them work. They would have a bigger white dot in the middle. And then you finally get to the original one. 
So maybe there's nothing special about 256 per se, but it needs to be a reasonably big number to get the effect that Escher was looking for. If it was too small, then you would really, either you'd have a big gap in the middle, or you would see multiple copies of the image and it would be a different type of picture. Okay, I'm gonna hand over to Roger. I'm just gonna leave you with, if you're interested in looking at any things, uh, there's a paper that Lenstra and, and De Schmidt wrote on the work that they did that's available. They have a nice website where they have lots of images uh, of the maps that, they, that I've shown you. And then uh, some of the pictures that showed how Escher generated this in the first place are from the book by Bruno Ernst. Okay. Well, it's a great pleasure to be able to express my appreciation of Escher and to try and tell you a few things which perhaps he would have done things with if he'd lived longer. Um, well, that, of course, is another one. But uh, I want to start by talking about the tiling outside the main building here. Uh, you saw that in the film, and you perhaps saw it as you came in the door. Uh, and uh, that is the kind of thing that Escher might have made use of, and, and I would like to show you one or two ways, and then I want to go into something else, and we'll talk about these models over there. Um, let's see, I hope this works. You may well have seen this picture. It's just one example of an Escher, but it's one of the ones outside the door. Uh, and it's an example which illustrates the symmetry. So you can see that the whole picture, if you move this dog into this dog by sliding it along, but you can also turn it over and move it up as well. It's what's called a glide symmetry. Uh, that's one example. <coughs> now I, I show you another example which you saw in the film. Now this one uh, has the property that it has rotational symmetry. Now you see that uh, it has points, well here's a point of twofold symmetry, so you rotate, well that one say, you can rotate through 180 degrees and the whole picture goes into itself. Um, and here's a point of six-fold symmetry, and then you have points of three-fold symmetry. If I can find one in the middle here somewhere. Uh, there, I think, there's one. So he exhibited some of the crystal symmetries that are possible here. Now, when I say a crystal symmetry, I mean something which can be uh, associated with a translational symmetry. And those symmetries are exactly as illustrated here, we have the two-fold symmetry that we just saw, and the three-fold and the six-fold, but also four-fold. Sorry, I should slide it up. That's four-fold, and there's six-fold. Now, I want to show you something else. Now, you can see this picture. It's made up out of pentagons, uh, five-pointed stars, we'll call pentacles, rhombuses, that's the little diamond shape, and this uh, half star, or jester's cap, over here. It just uses those four shapes. And this thing creates a pattern. Well, I think I'll circumvent this little problem by showing you a, a different version of it here. <laughs> so you can see the pattern, the larger area of the pattern. And uh, it's made up of just of those shapes. And if you just look at it casually, it has a look as though it ha is, has a translational symmetry. It looks almost as though it's a crystal pattern. However, and here's why I would need to show you the whole thing, because it looks like a pentagon on the outside, and in fact it has a five-fold symmetry, and that's not one of the crystal symmetries. 
Now, that's a theorem, that you can only have those ones I told you. And I'm not going to explain how this gets around the theorem, but it does it by being almost five-hole symmetric in a very important technical sense. Now, I want to show you how this pattern is constructed. So let's go back to my previous one. I hope I can get enough of it on to give you the idea. Uh, now you see that these pentagons fit themselves together to make bigger pentagons. So let's take, I hope I get one in the picture. Here's a pentagon there. And that's subdivided into six smaller ones with these little triangular gaps. And that happens all over the place. So you can see that the pentagons in this picture can be collected together to make uh, bigger pentagons. And so there we have a bigger pattern. I think I'll leave this one here because I want to take it another stage. Here we have the next stage. Those orange ones are again collected together to form these big blue ones. And the blue ones, well now here I have a problem because <laughs> <laughs> I won't get that all on. <laughs> but, uh, but you will see uh, as you follow around there is a big blue pentagon. And the whole pattern is constructed in, in this hierarchical way. Now, the hierarchy is not a thing that you, you sort of notice. You look at the pattern, it looks very regular, and you don't really see any hierarchy. You see a regularity about it, which is very strong. Um, in fact, there are lots of features, such as if you take a little line, I'm not sure I can do this at this scale, but here, take one of these lines, and you follow that line all the way along, and it keeps on going. Any line in the picture, whichever direction it's pointing in, it, it just keeps on going. So like this. It's hard for me to watch that and this at the same time. But. Moreover, it has interesting sub-patterns. Now, whether I can find them on here, you see, here's one where you see a decagon, a ten-sided figure, and there are these decagons all over the place. And wherever you find one of these regular ten-sided figure, you'll find it's got three pentagons, two rhombuses, and one jester's cap, and they're always like that everywhere. And whenever you find one of those, it's always surrounded by a ring of ten pentagons. So this one's got a ring of ten pentagons. So you've got these rings which are rather fascinating when you look at it and they sort of stand out. So there's a lot of order in this thing which has nothing to do really with the hierarchical arrangement. It just has this kind of uh, local order which is, which is uh, highly symmetrical in, in which it in a sense shouldn't be because it's one of the forbidden crystal symmetries. Now, I don't know whether I can show you this, but I hope I can. Yeah, I can show you them one at a time. Here I have, you see, this is just a mathematical way in which you construct, construct this picture. But I had the idea is maybe you can force that arrangement with a kind of jigsaw puzzle. So here we have six pieces. Well, there are three pentagons, that one, that one, and that one. And we have these uh, uh, pentacle, the jester's cap, and the, and the rhombus. And they are decorated with these little knobs and things. So that's how you make it into a jigsaw puzzle. You have to fit the, the little knobs in the right holes and so on. <laughs> yep, there, there you see them all at once. Excellent. That, that does help. <laughs> Thank you. OK. Without that, I'll just tell you, I'm not going to show you why, but if you assemble these six pieces, you imagine you have an infinite supply of these pieces, 
then they will fit together only in the kind of way I've shown you, which will be almost periodic, but never quite. So it's almost a crystal, but not quite. It's the sort of thing people call quasi-crystals, and, and actually they now find actual substances which, which have this kind of symmetry, and the atomic arrangements seem to follow the kind of thing that I've been showing you. Now I had this as a sort of curious uh, jigsaw or mathematical puzzle where you've got these six shapes which will only fit together in a way which never repeats itself. And I was talking to a mathematician, Simon Cochin from Princeton, the United States, and he was telling me about another set of such shapes, due to Raphael Robinson, which had been produced in 1971, based on some earlier ideas from Hao Wong and um, one of his students. And uh, they, uh, he had reduced these original considerations to this six set of tiles. And I was told that, well, he was somebody who likes to get the smallest number. And he got the six. They're nothing like mine, as you see, but they have the same property that they will tile the whole plane, but only in a way which never repeats itself. So it's what's called an aperiodic set of tiles. And, but when he told me that Raphael Robertson likes to get the smallest number, he has this, you know, I said, well, I know I can do it with the five. <laughs> because if I take mine, and then you notice this little spiky thing down there, um, the only place it can fit in is in here, and this one's got one of the spiky things, and the only place it can fit in here, so all I need to do is cut out this piece, stick it on there and there, stick it on there, and then I've got five pieces. <laughs> so uh, then I went home and I thought, well, I wonder if I can do any better than that. And uh, I eventually came up with two. Now, I remember feeling a bit disappointed. You might think it's a strange reaction. A bit disappointed because I thought this is so simple that surely it's well known. And uh, I just want to relate it to the original set. You see, it take a while, little while to see this, but every one of these two shapes, which John Conway called uh, kites, that's the kite there, and darts, kites and darts, and every dart has the same pattern inside it, and so does every kite. And if you fit the, match them together in this way, then you match the cuts and dots that way, you get this. Now, in fact, uh, you can force the matching by making the colouring the vertices either white or black. And if you want to match the white and black, the only way you can fit them together, with two now, is in this never-repeating pattern. So, that's done with two. Now, we've been talking about Escher here. So I did wonder at one stage, since Escher had really been influencing me with his uh, intriguing all sorts of ways of making uh, periodic patterns into, into interesting animals and so on. So I wondered, can you Escherize this? So I came up with one. This is not my first attempt. I'll show you that in a minute. But uh, it's almost my first attempt. And you see it's made up out of two bird shapes. There is the, 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 the fat bird. If I can find one, there's the fat bird there. And the thin bird, which is this one here. And the only way that they will fit together is in this never-repeating pattern. And if you want to know what the relationship between this is and the kites and darts, it really is kites and darts in disguise, is what we do. And if I hope I can line this up right. We have to get it like that. And I think you will see that the little birds are the darts and the big birds are the kites. Well, the bird, kite is a bird too, but I don't mean it in that sense. <laughs> um, 
So here we have the Escherization that I came up with of this type of pattern. Now, if Escher had been around at this time, unfortunately he died just a few years, about the same time as my father did, and neither of them saw these things, which was a great disappointment to me. But nevertheless, uh, they have some interest. Um, now, there's another way of doing the two tiles, and in some ways, it's even simpler. That's with these rhombus shapes. Again, you must have matching rules. Of course, there are lots of ways of fitting rhombuses together. You could just take one of them and just do it periodically. So you've got to have a rule which stops you doing the easy stuff. You've got to match it so that the spots... It's exactly the same spots that I had previously. And, in fact, it is exactly the same as what I showed you previously, but just rearranged a little bit. So that is the same tiling, but things cut, a, cut apart a bit and reassembled. And so there we have the rhombus version with the matching rules, and the only way of assembling those two rhombus shapes with this set of matching rules is in an aperiodic or non-periodic way, in a set which is called an aperiodic set. Okay, well, when I heard about this wonderful building as it was being constructed, uh, Nick Woodhouse, was, who was one of the, well, he was the driving force behind all this, um, suggested to me that it might be nice to have a, a tiling out the front based on one of my tilings. So I thought, well, look, lots of people have used this, usually in that way without the decorations, and it seemed to me maybe we could do something a little bit more interesting. And if you remember, going back to the version I have here, there were these rather nice rings, these decagons, and every time you have a decagon, it's surrounded by a ring of ten pentagons. So let's think about those rings, and I'll mark the rings. Actually, this, it's better if I, I go to the next scale of the hierarchy, so, so let's go to the orange ones here, and if I put these, I mark those rings of just around the decagons, and you see here we have a, a green ring which goes around that decagon and it follows through the set of ten pentagons. And that happens all the way over. And so you can put those rings down and that would make a nice pattern because it brings out this rather attractive feature of those rings. Of course, just doing that, uh, we have a little, lots of gaps all over the place. So in order to kill that little problem, I'm going to put, I have to make sure I've got it the right way up, which I think I have, yes, there we are. A few more lines on this. So you'll see now that I have a sort of curvilinear version of what I had before. The, the well, here's the pentacle. You see, if you follow the green lines around, it's a sort of curved version of it. Um, and the rhombus, there's a curved version of the rhombus. And the, the jester's cap, there's a curved version of it and then the pentagons would get distorted in various different ways, but the, the three different versions of the pentagon uh, are distorted in different ways. Anyway, so there you are, it makes a nice pattern. But what does that do when you go to the, uh, to the uh, rhombuses, which is disappeared, oh no, here right on top. You go to the rhombuses instead, you'll take away the Pentagons, because that confuses this, I think. Put the rhombuses there. And now we have a way of marking the rhombuses. However, we still have rather a lot of gaps. Some of them are different. So we better fill those gaps in two. And when I've done that, 
if I can find the right way around for this thing. Here we are. Now, every fat rhombus has the same crossed green lines on it. The, every thin rhombus has two <coughs> arcs on it, and they fit together to make this pattern. And this is exactly the pattern you find outside the building, except that the, it isn't green, but you have these very nice stainless steel arcs, and uh, that is the pattern that you walk across when you come into the building. So if you want to know what it is, that's what it is. Okay, now let me say something more about escherizations. In fact, I think I'm going to go to the uh, other device now, if I could. Thank you, except it hasn't done it. There we are. No, that's not the first one. Can I go to the first one? Yeah. This is actually the first version escherization I did, which appeared anywhere in an article I had. Uh, and you can see that it's the cuts and the dots, <coughs> really, but slightly distorted, to make two birds. Now, I want to show you um, another one, so let me move this on. Various people have tried to do this, um, and the person who's, I think, done the most in the most interesting ways is Richard Hassel. And this, as far as I know, one of his very early examples, they're little frogs, and it's the sort of thing Escher might have done, might well have done. Um, these little frogs uh, are actually kites and darts. And I think I'm going to have to come back to the, this screen. If, if you do it for me, it'll save me from ruining everything. So here we are. Good. Thank you. This is a version of the Richard Hassel picture. And just to show you that it really is kites and darts. Here we go. And I think if I've got it in the right place, you will see that the big frogs, yeah, they very are, really are very distorted. You see their, their arms and legs go way out and in again. But where they all come together, where the arms and their legs come together, are the vertices of this picture. And the, this big white one here is a, is a kite. <coughs> this one is a kite. That brown one is a kite. This dark brown one is a dart here. And you see this white one is a dart and so on. The color coding, I think, is just a, a three-color coding, <coughs> three-coloring of the entire pattern. And it's um, just one way you can do it. So I'm sure Escher would have done more things. Other people have done others. Uh, I think this is one of the nicest ones I've seen. Uh, I don't want to show you a whole lot because I want to go to other things now. In fact, that was just the tilings. Let me now say something about... Oh, before I go on to... Sorry, I was going to show you some other, just another picture. This is a... I just want to show you that the five-fold one is just one of several. This is a 12-fold one. It's really very attractive due to <coughs> Galen and Nissen. Uh, there's four-fold ones, uh, sorry, I should say eight-fold ones, 12-fold ones, uh, and other, well, seven-fold ones look rather horrible, but the, but the, <coughs> the eights and the twelves, I think, are very beautiful, particularly the twelves. And I've never seen an escherization of this pattern, but it would be very nice to see that. Somebody has a go at it. <coughs> okay, now I want to move on to something else that Escher was very important in doing, which is the impossible 
objects. Now, you see, you couldn't make that out of wood, uh, but we're going to see in a minute down here that you can do things like this. Is it impossible or not? Now, I guess we want the, you want to switch the camera, do we? Now, I hope this is going to work because it really depends on nobody having joggled this table. Nobody having joggled this table. <laughs> there was a lecture in here, and then we've had other lectures, and wow, look, it still works. <laughs> that was lined up just right, so you have, it, it's an, a possible impossible triangle. And of course, if you want to see what it really is, you give it a little twist. Well, first of all, I think the best thing is to put your hand through it, which we had, there we are. Or we give it a little twist, and then you can see what it is. I think that's a very nice model made by my cousin Tony. And uh, my father made one of these a long time ago. Uh, I don't know where it's got to. I think it may be in the basement in the Science Museum somewhere. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very, it was much harder to, make an, to get it out than to make a new one. <laughs> so, so Tony uh, did this really ni very nicely done, I may say, with very little indication of what, what it actually looked like, I think. Okay, so that's that one. Now I think I can take this away, and it's the steps I want next, isn't it? Yes. Now, why don't I take that off? Yes, now, it's tricky this one. <laughs> Aim it so that that is just on top of that one. Just a little bit more. That's it, nearly, nearly. Nearly, just about. <laughs> I can't, don't know how to direct you. Yeah. <laughs> Line up the black strips, I guess, a bit better. That's it, and then slide it up. Excellent. Very good. There you are. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, my father made a model just like this which was in the article that we wrote in the British Journal of Psychology, which we sent to Escher, and which stimulated him to make his own uh, very, very remarkable picture with the monks going round and round. Now, I want to say something about these dogs. Now, now how do we get, can we get that thing to work? <laughs> See, this was, Something about these pictures was something that intrigued us. When you use perspective, here we go, yes. When you use perspective, there is a feature which Escher never actually used. And here you can see it lined up. I think we've got it just right here. Um, you see the dogs, uh, where should we start? The front here. You see you have a, what looks like a little dog and a big dog. But then when you follow around, you see the dogs, as they follow around, they're all the same size as each other, and they all come around, and then this one, just, just behind that one there, so it looks, and they look as though they're the same size. And these look as though they're the same size as the others. But when they get to the front, you see they're not. And there's no break at the front at all. And where's the break? Well, you see, the range is... Oops, what's happened? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> there's the brake. Though now we know where the brake is. 
Is it? Oh, you've got it back, yes. You see, the idea is the brake is disguised by this little fellow having his back legs glued onto this piece here. So it looks as his front legs are on this part over here where they're not. They're hanging into space. So the poor dog would, would fall over if he didn't have his glues, back legs glued. But you see, the perspective is locally completely correct. That is to say, if you were to draw, it's like the previous picture we were seeing, it's, it's locally completely co correct and consistent. It's just that globally, it doesn't make sense. Well, it makes a certain kind of sense, but it's not something you could construct out of wood without having a break somewhere, or, or bending it, or something like that. So here, because that dog is in fact a lot further away from the eye, from that dog there, you can have this dog physically bigger than this one, and they look as though they're comparable size. So as you follow all the way around, it looks as though the sizes have jumped. Until you get here, which is where there isn't a jump, you can see quite clearly there's no break in the staircase. So it's a very nice illusion, and I'm sure Escher would have done things if he'd brought the perspective angle in, which for some reason he never actually did. Um, I want to show you an example if I now go back to the, uh, to the PowerPoint, we can do that. I'm not sure if it's the next picture, but it should be. Let's try it. Yes, uh, actually, that's, yeah. Let me, let me do a bit of history first. This is a picture which was made by Oskar Reutersvard, who was a Swedish, um, I'm not sure, architect, or, well, I worry about architect, <laughs> artist, let's say. A uh, Swedish artist who um, actually drew a picture like this in about the year I was born. So certainly things like this, it wasn't exactly the triangle because it's a lot of squares, but it's the same idea. So this is a thing which was done by Oscar Reitersvard and he did a lot of other things, including various staircases and things like that. Uh, so it's worth, I think, pointing out that ideas were explored earlier. Um, now, do I do it on this machine? No, I don't. I'm pressing, oh, here's the gadget over here. That's it. Is that right? Yeah, you just press the R. Oh, this is just the same, same thing, but done more slickly. You see, that was his, I think, his original sketch. And then you can make it look much slicker with modern technology. But let me show you something else. You see, that wasn't, by any means, the first example of an impossible object. Here we have a very beautiful picture, which was done by Peter Bruegel the Elder, I suppose in the 16th century. And you see in the middle, it's, it, the name of the picture is the, um, is the magpie and the gallows. And there's a magpie sitting on the top of the gallows. The gallows are in the middle of the picture. And you see it is an impossible structure. Because the way it's joined up at the top is different from the way the two... I, I, I can just point to it. If we have these two places where the thing's standing on a rock, and they are sort of side by side, and that's inconsistent with the way the thing is joined up at the top. So it is an example of an impossible object, and if you go way back, I think there are some even earlier ones, but I think this is a wonderful one to show, that uh, there are examples of the sort of thing in art, and uh, you have to look for them. I think people looked at this and said, oh, Bruegel made a mistake in his picture. Well, that's, of course, ridiculous. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. And I think he wanted to create some kind of eerie feeling about it, 
which you couldn't quite put your finger on. I think that was the sort of thing he was trying to do. Now, this is a picture that I drew in an attempt to bring out this paradox that Escher didn't make use of, but could have, about the size. It's the dog paradox, you see. The dogs, if you try <laughs> to do it with perspective, then you have this issue of the sizes. As you go around, the sizes are not consistent. So I was deliberately doing that here in a very extreme form. So over on the left, you see this little child who's <coughs> playing with this little train set just about to push it over, I think. But then there's little, little <coughs> toy creatures walking out there. And then they climb up the staircase and they become the same size as the children playing at the top. So this, this inconsistency arising from this size problem, the size illusion, comes about when you combine perspective with the impossible structure. Now, I was at a conference in Rome, I think it was, uh, in honor of Escher, and uh, I happened to be talking to a mathematician. Uh, unfortunately, I've forgotten who it was, but I was talking to a mathematician, and I was pointing out that these things are illustrations of what mathematicians call cohomology. Now, I'm not going to explain what cohomology is, but roughly speaking, it's the idea that you can have something with a local structure which has a certain ambiguity, and the ambiguity in the picture is you don't know how far away the object is that you're looking at. So you might be looking at a very small thing close up or a much larger thing a long way away, and that freedom in the picture is something that you can't get rid of. But the fact that you've got that freedom, you can use it in this inconsistent way. And that inconsistency, the measure of this inconsistency, is what mathematicians call cohomology. And this American mathematician said, well, can you do that for any other group, you see? And, and he said, well, what about Z2? Or Z2, I guess he would have said. Uh, and I thought for a bit, well, no, I never thought of that before. But then, when I thought about it a bit more, I thought, yes, you can. And so I want to use something that Escher used here. We had this picture before in the film, but he used to very striking effect. I think you can see best what I mean if you hold your hand up and cover vertically half of the picture. Now if you look at the left hand half of the picture, you have a certain interpretation. You've got a chap climbing up the stairs and then you go through that thing and then there's somebody kind of dozing, kneeling down and then there's a, a pool there and then you try and go up the other stairs and you start getting into problems. Now, you just start from the other end, cover up the left-hand part with your hand, if you like, and you see a perfectly consistent picture. And this chap is climbing up the stairs, and then he goes inside, and this thing is a kind of a, a well, a covering of a, a lamp or something like that. And it's completely different. You see, it's, 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 it's the other way around. But what Escher has done is, he, is he's used the ambiguity of which way around it is. It's called concave and convex, and which way around is it, you see? There's this freedom. It could be one way or the other. And on one side, only one of those is consistent. On the other side, the other is consistent. But you have to have the strip in the middle where it's ambiguous. And that ambiguity, ambiguity allows you to do to, to this impossible thing here. But I thought that there was another thing you could do, which is in some ways a bit more subtle, although my picture has no comparison, of course, with that one, but uh, 
let me just show you. This was a picture I came up with. I, I had a more a simple one at conference, which I showed the next day. But this was an example of something which illustrates the cohomology. Uh, now, you see, I don't quite know how to describe this because it flips one way or the other a bit too easily. But if you try it to be consistent, suppose on the right-hand side that shaded part is the floor, then you can walk up the stairs and you can go to the left and walk upstairs, then walk upstairs, walk upstairs, then walk uh, onto the top and then walk down some stairs and then down here and then down here and then down here. And then you find that this is the floor, the white one. And it flipped. You see, the flip is, is a global thing. You, see, you noticed, I probably need uh, the, the trick that we had in the previous talk to feel what went on in the middle. I didn't uh, have an idea of how to do that, so I just put a little design in there. Because you do have a problem. Maybe you can think of a way of doing that. Um, but at the moment, I wasn't worrying about what happened in the middle. I mean, Escher had that fault too, so uh, I suppose I can get off with that. But you see, you do have an inconsistency inconsistency in the picture. There's somebody who's a real expert, called Bruno Ernst, who actually dug up, I think, the, the uh, Bruegel picture, which I show, and there are various things like that. And I showed him this picture. And I said, can you see anything wrong with that? He said, no. I said, are you sure? Could you, could you make that out of wood? He said, yeah. Are you sure? Follow your way all the way around, and it flips. It took him a long time to realize that that's an impossible object. And so there's a certain subtlety in that, which I suppose the, the convex and concave aspect of it flips too easily. And when you're wa walking your way around, you, it jumps to the other, and you don't realize it's done that. But if you absolutely consistently walk all, your, all the way around, you find that uh, you, you have an inconsistency. So it is an impossible object of a different kind, which, again, I suppose Asher would have done great things with. And he could have, well, there's another one, you see. This one has five. You see, uh, it, it, you have to have an odd number going around to, to make it <coughs> consistent. Or a number which isn't uh, a multiple of three, I should say. And then this one is another one, which is using seven now. And uh, the shading was always a problem. You have to be very careful about how you do the shading. But, uh, but that works all right. Um, I think I will end up by showing you that the sort of thing that Escher presumably would have done if he had this kind of idea before him. And I'm sure he would have. Uh, this, is, this is an Escher, a well-known Escher picture. And you will see it involves actually some combination of various tricks. But the main thing I want to say here is if you follow one of those strips around, you see the little bubbles point one way or the other way. But if you follow them consistently, they're inconsistent with what the other ones do when you... <laughs> in fact, when, they po when, when they're at the side or the top, you see, when they're poking out, you can see which way the bubbles have to point. But when, you, when they're sort of in the middle, they could point one way or the other. And he's done it, so it's inconsistent. If they point out on one side and you follow them around, then they shouldn't point out on the other side. They should be pointing in there. And uh, it's, it's a very clever... You see, it's, it's, you can... The ones I showed you were just using straightforward um, flat surfaces, well, more or less flat, uh, and they're just sort of staircase things. Whereas here you have a much greater subtlety in the shading on these little bubble things. And Escher would have, I'm sure, made a great use of that sort of thing to create impossible structures of kinds that we never have seen and never will see, except that I suppose 
other people can use these ideas to produce impossible structures. Thank you very much. <laughs>